This evening we'll begin a new study as we look at God among the nations. Keep in mind that the power is in the Word of God. It's not in the finesse of preacher or any human being. It's in the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 makes it clear that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and there's a dessert, and a, uh, uh, and a, discerner, huh? discerner of the thoughts, you... yeah, it's a discerner of the thoughts of a man, and so it's, uh, in our study, I want to impress on you the fact that, although we have to look at some definitions that are not found directly in the Bible. Uh, they're found if we change scripture enough, but we'll look at these definitions, and, but the impact of this lesson is found in the scriptures and what they say, the way they wordy, the wordage is. I want you to, I'll remind you of that a few times during this study. And so we're going to look at God among the nations. And this study is a study of the relationship of the church and the nations to God and His overruling providence. Now, a man has screwed up that idea so bad that we have to do some definitions. That's what we got up here before we can get into our study. Uh, the benefits of this study are legion. Number one, it will enable you to, uh, in seeing a sight of God that maybe you haven't seen before, namely his divine sovereignty and providence in the affairs of men on a day-by-day, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute, continual basis. <clears throat> Secondly, it will enable you in engaging a and, in, uh, and accomplishing the task that God has commissioned us in respect to preaching the gospel, edifying the saved, uh, and being that light set on a hill with, a, uh, with an assurance and confidence that is unshakable. That's the benefits of this study. And number three, uh, third benefit, that I see is that it will enable you to mount up on wings of eagles, as is stated in Isaiah the 40th chapter and the last few verses. Uh, it starts out with this statement, they that wait on Jehovah. If you're willing to wait and let Jehovah educate you and bring you out of the darkness and the dogma of man's philosophies, then you'll be like the eagle. Because they that wait on Jehovah shall mount up on wings of eagles and run and not be weary, walk and not faint. But you know what it says about the young man and his strength? It's not so with him. Because he's the one that falters and falls. He's the one that sticks drugs in his arm. He's the one that puts a gun finally to his head to end it all. you got to get that picture. But a man of God has the uh, the affirmation, the confidence, the assurance that only God can give 
and it'll enable you to stand in a wicked world. That's what Romans 8 says in verse 31. Since God is for us, who or what could be against us? And of course, we know about the list down there. Paul said, what about death? What about life? What about principalities and powers? What about things present or things to come? Nor height, nor depth, or any of these creatures shall not be able to separate the man of God from the love of God. We can stand and look death square in the eye as they swing the hatchet, the axe, to take our head off if, if it comes to that, and we can do so confidently, assuredly, because we stand on the Word of God. We have this uh, understanding that God is in this world with us, and He is busy every minute, every hour, every day in man's behalf. And so we don't have anything to worry about. But our confidence is going to be in the Word of God. It's not going to be in the finesse of some preacher or somebody with fancy words. It just ain't going to happen. Number four. It will enable you to comprehend in an intensified and intimate way certain statements of assurance stated by the Lord. Like, uh, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. That means something to the man who has thought about it and who believes the Word of God. That has power in it. And another statement, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that you can boldly say, The Lord is my helper. What? Whom or what shall I fear that man shall do unto me? All right, that brings us to some definitions that we've got to wade through because of man screwing up the, the truth of God's Word in regard to God's providence. Certain definitions that precede our study. Now, I don't like it any better than you do, but we're going to have to go through these definitions and get a hold of them, and then we're prepared to go into the study. But this is part of letting us know what the problem is amongst our community, amongst people, amongst our relatives and friends. And so uh, we began with the word providence because we're talking about God's providence in the affairs of men in behalf of the nations and the church. The word providence is from the Latin providentiae if that's the way you pronounce it. And it means etymologically to foresee. Providence, foresee. The corresponding Greek word, and I've got them up here, but they don't mean anything to us, means forethought. Forethought and foresight implies, number one, a future end, number two, a goal, and number three, a definite purpose and plan. Number four. Let me state that again because it's, it's imperative we understand a little bit about these words. Forethought and foresight implies what? Four things. A future end. A goal to accomplish. And a, defi a definite purpose and plan 
for attaining that end. The doctrine of final ends is a doctrine of final causes and means uh, that that which is last in relation in, in realization and attainment is first in mind and thought. The most essential arbitrate uh, attribute of rational beings is that they act with reference to an end. We do. That they act not only with thought, but with forethought. As therefore, it is characteristic of, relation, of uh, rational beings to make preparation for every event that is foreseen or anticipated. The word providence has come to be used less in its original etymological meaning of foresight than to simply uh, signify that preparation, care, and uh, supervision which are necessary to secure a desired future result. While all rational beings exercise a providence uh, portion to their powers, yet it is only when the word is used with re reference to the divine beings who is past, uh, who, who possesses, who is possessed with infinite knowledge and power that it takes on the real and true significance. And so the doctrine of divine providence, therefore, has reference to that uh, preservation, care, and government which God exercises over all things that he has created in order that they may accomplish the ends for which they were created. This world just isn't created out here in their sets. Everything in it has a purpose, has an end, has a goal in mind. It serves God in some way as it serves us because he made this globe for you and I. He gave us dominion over it. He said, I'll walk with you and I'll be with you and I'll help you all the way through. And we've discussed that many times, so I won't get off into that. But there are different views of providence. And so we've kind of got a handle on what the word providence means. Forethought and foresight. We see things according to our power. We're limited, but God is not. Romans 4.17 says that God calls those things that be not as though they already were. And it says, for, it just to explain it, God says, uh, Paul says that God looks down through the corridors of time and he sees the end from the very beginning. There's nothing that surprises God. There's nothing that slips up on his backside. There's nothing that alarms him at all. He has planned this thing out the way he wanted it and the world with all of its problems and difficulties that we see down here it is progressively working itself to the conclusion that God intended for it to. He don't create the problems in the political realm. 
In fact, he's destroyed nations because of their politics and their refusal to listen to him. But still, he's in charge, and he's the one who providentially is bringing everything to its consummation at the end of life, of time, of this planet. <clears throat> and so the doctrine of divine providence, therefore, has reference to that preservation, care, and government which God exercises over all things that he has created in order that they may accomplish the ends for which he created them. Now, the different views of providence. There are four distinct uh, conceptions of providence as it concerns God's relation uh, to the ongoing world and the man. The, the rational and moral free agent whom he has placed upon it. And so, here's the four that we're going to discuss. We'll start with the first one, atheism. Atheism or materialism is the same thing. A man who lives to gratify the flesh and lives for material things, and that alone is an atheist. He don't believe in God. Had no use for God. Uh, so atheism or materialism stands at one extreme, uh, affirming that there is no God. See, they've got to get God out of the picture because they want to be God. They want to be their own God. They don't want anyone messing with their stuff that God gives them and blesses them with. And that's a problem we have. Uh, and so, uh, atheism and materialism stands at one extreme, affirming that there is no God, that the material universe is eternal, and that from material atoms, eternally endowed with certain propensities, there have come by a process of evolution all existing forms of vegetable, animal, and rational life. There's your doctrine of evolution. And it's nothing new. Moses was taught a theory of evolution. If you want to go back and research it, the Bible's not going to tell you that that happened. But Moses was born in an era, in a station, in a place in life where evolution, not being anything new, now Darwin's theory is new, that's true. But throughout the ages of man upon the earth, he's had many philosophical theories about evolving. And they had one in Egypt at the time of Moses. So, as materialism uh, denies the existence of a personal creator, it of course denies any and every doctrine of divine providence. Now, let's go to the second word, uh, panatheism. And of course, you got these phones and you got Google. Uh, be interesting if you wrote these names down and done a little research on your own. You might come up with a better definition than what I've got. Because mine didn't come from Google. It came from ISBE and a few other places. International Standard Bible Encyclopedia and things. But 
and do a little research. Panatheism stands at the other extreme from atheism, and it teaches that God is everything and every uh, and everything is God. Now, don't blink your eyes at me, because that's what they believe. They believe that the flower is God. They believe that the, the rodent out there is God, because he created it, so it's God. There is a distinct difference between God and the things that he created. Otherwise, God is not a he or a she, I mean a he, but he is a it, don't you see, with that kind of a philosophy. So the created universe is the living garment, according to them, of God. God is the soul of the world, according to them. The universe is existent uh, form. But God is an infinite it according to them, not a personal being who can express his uh, existence in terms of self-consciousness, like I and thou and he. So providence, according to the pantheism, is simply the evolution of impersonal deity. In other words, he don't have any personality. He's just deity. He's just a power, that's all. Uh, so the evolutions uh, of, uh, of uh, impersonal deity differing from materialism only in the name in which it gives to the infinite substance from which all things flow. Now, before I leave that, let me bring your attention to what goes on in Benton City and around the world, I suppose, at least in the United States. Have you heard of Earth Day? That goes along with pantheism. Earth Day. A worship of the earth. Because to them that's God. A thing, not a person. I hope none of us ever get guilty of, of, of honoring in any way Earth Day. Benton City will hang up banners down on the street, and they do it every year. We can't stop that, but we need to be informed about it. All right, number three. Deism. It's philosophy about, uh, about providence. Deism teaches that there is a God and that he creates, created the world. But, now listen to this but. But he created things, his, but uh, created things do not need his presence. There's many in the church who believe that. They admit that God created this world. But they don't see him in charge of anything. They see the world just uh, coasting uh, through time and doing whatever it wants to do with no end in view. Like God didn't really have a purpose. He just made the earth, put us here, and he's just amazed at what we're doing and which way we're going. 
Now, <laughs> I'm doing my best to try to explain it and I make a fool out of myself. That's all right if it gets the point across. Uh, so, uh, their idea is that God created things do not need His presence and the exercise of His power in order to continue in existence and fulfill their functions. And so the material world is placed under immutable law, while man, the rational and moral free agent, according to them, is left to do as he pleases, as he wills. That's deism. Uh, God sustains, according to deism, very much the same relation to the universe that the clockmaker does to his timepiece. Having made his clock and wound it up, he does not interfere with it. And the longer it can run without the maker's intervention, the greater the evidence of wisdom and skill on the part of the maker. And so they see God off in the distance. He's made the clock, this universe, and man. He set it on the pedestal. And he's off, he wound it up, and he's sitting there watching it, unwind, however long it takes. In other words, according to them, they believe in God. They believe in a deity. But they don't see him involved in the minutes and the hours of our life and the days of our life. That's what they don't see. And that's what we have to see. We've done a lot of talking from this pulpit about uh, what probably goes on. Uh, and some things we're pretty sure that they go on. On the other side of the curtain, on the stage of life. God don't tell us everything. He don't tell us why he does things or what he does out there. He's give us his word to lead us and guide us as a father does. We walk with him, 1 John 1, 7. And as we walk with him, uh, uh, he sees in his providence to you and I. He told the Corinthians, Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 8 and 9, he said, God will see you through to the day of Christ. You have nothing to worry about. You just keep your eye on God. You just follow God. Don't show any rebellion. Show a surrendered spirit, a humble spirit. As Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse uh, 6, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And then verse 11 says, after you've suffered a while, and you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. Peter said, if any man suffer, let him suffer as a Christian. You don't want to suffer like the world does. Shooting up, gun to the head, all kinds of hell and mayhem in the home, divorce, all that kind of stuff. You don't want that. Uh -uh, you don't want any of that. And so what was I just talking about? First Peter 5, verse 6. Huh? First Peter 5, verse 6. Humbling yourself under God. And then verse 10, but the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, he'll make you perfect, establish and strengthen and settle you. Yeah, you establish, strengthen, and settle you. 
<laughs> but that's only if you believe in God and you come to see His mighty hand of providence behind the curtain of life. These eyes are limited in what they see. I'm sure that we know that. But sometimes man's ego and his arrogance, he gets to thinking, boy, we just see everything. And, and well, like a friend, like a guy said on the job one time, I don't believe it unless I see it. I'm from Missouri. Well, he went down the tube like he 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 went down like a plane uh, crashing because I happened to be sitting next to him and I asked him. I said, "Is that true? You don't believe anything unless you see it." He said, "That's right." And there's a room full of guys there. I had no choice. I had to put him down. I said, "That can't be true because I said you believe your mother's your mother." Well, what's you gonna do with it? I said, it's got a lot to do with it. You didn't see yourself born, but you have no doubt that she's your mother. And why is it? You believe that she's your mother the same way I believe in the scriptures, because of the testimony of eyewitnesses. <coughs> your father, uh, your mother, the doctor, the nurses, friends and relatives that came up there assured you that you are his her, her son and that's why you believe it based on the testimony of eyewitnesses but you didn't see nothing we're limited in what we see here Paul talks about it in Romans 1 verse 20 he said verse 18 he said man is under the wrath of God for this reason verse 20 for the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Now, isn't that a contradiction of terms, the way we understand things? He said the invisible things of God are clearly seen. How can that be? How can it be invisible and yet I can clearly see them? He said they're seen from the creation of the world by the things that are made. You know what that tells you? That tells you this uh, principle of design demands a designer. If you drive past an oil refinery and you see all them pipes that run above the truck so they can go under and deliver their goods, and you see these big vessels standing there, and you see crude oil coming in one end of that refinery, and out the other end that crude oil is broken down in the processes that they use, to make gasoline, butane, propane, diesel, and all of the fuels. There is unity. There is function. And nobody goes past an oil refinery and asks, well, who did a ball well the ground? We know that there was purpose and planning, that there was intelligence that worked to design and build that refinery based on the laws of physics. And so Paul said the visible things of God are clearly seen. Adam saw them, Eve saw them, Cain, Abel, and Seth saw them, and every human that has ever been born into this world and lived long enough to see them has seen the evidence of creation and it's de it's design demands a very two things it de it demands a 
uh, a superior intelligence that designed it and a superior power that made it. That's what it tells you. There's no getting around that. So there's things that your eyes can't see. The scriptures tells you that God working behind that curtain on the stage of life, it does tell you that he does certain things. For example, he will not allow you to be tempted above that you're able to bear, but will with the temptation give you a way of escape. That's what he's doing out there. He's watching. He's superintending your life. He told the Corinthians again that God will see you through to the day of Christ. Who's, who's, what's the significance of the day of Christ? Acts 17, verse 31. God has appointed a day in which he'll judge this world by who? By that man whom he's ordained, wherein he give assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. And so God will see you through to the day of Christ. That's the assurance that we have. <clears throat> so we know that there's things goes on behind the curtain on the stage of life. If you've ever uh, been privy to an actual stage theatrical act, there's more people involved behind the curtain than there is out this side of the curtain that you see in the act. They're changing the times and the seasons and everything in that performance. And that's where God and all the angels are. And again, I would have loved to have been there when Elijah's servant woke early in the morning in a little town uh, behind uh, walls that couldn't protect him. Uh, and he walked over and looked out there over the wall and seen the Assyrian army. And they came to kill Elijah because they figured it out. Their wise men figured it out that every time they made an attack on Israel, Elijah knew and warned Israel about the attack and they was never there. They were never successful in it. And so they come to kill one man, Elijah. And the servant ran back in and woke his master and he said, come over at the wall you've got to see this. Well, there's no hope for us. It went over there and the city was surrounded with soldiers. And Elijah looked at him and said, They that are with us are more than they that are with them. And I can see that servant looking at Elijah and saying, Now that didn't make any sense because look at all this, a whole army around us of Syrians. Of, uh, Syrians. And Elijah saw it in the man's face and he prayed to God. He said, Open his eyes that he might see. And when he opened his eyes, he saw the myriads of angels. The valleys and the hills uh, uh, was, was crowded with angels all the way around with the sword of death in their hand. Knuckles that had turned white as they gripped that sword waiting for the order to kill them. 
Was they in secure hands? Yes, it was. Who was the one behind the planning and the operation of that? God was. The angels served him. You remember Hebrews 1 verse 14? Are they not ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who are heirs of eternal life? That's a fact. All right, so... Uh, God, according to deism, has never wrought a miracle or made a supernatural uh, revelation to man. The only religion that is possible to man is natural religion. He may reason from nature up to nature's God. The only value of prayer is its subjective influence on you and me. It helps us to answer our own prayers, to become and be what we are, uh, what we're praying to be. So they don't see God in the picture at all. If the divine being is a prayer-hearing God, and he is, he is at least not a prayer-answering God. And that's their answer to all of this. The laws of nature constitute God's general providence. That's why they look to nature. Nature provides. Mother nature. Kind of upsets me every time I hear that. Mother nature. It's not mother nature. It's God and his nature. But there is no other personal uh, and special providence than this, according to deism that we're defining here which is the third one up there. God, the deist affirms, is too great, too distant, too transcendent a being to concern himself with the details of uh, creatory existence, a creature existence. In other words, he don't really care about us. He gave his son, but you know, The fourth one is the one that we're going to study. The theistic or the Bible, the biblical concept of providence. It teaches that God is not only the creator, but the preserver of the universe. And that the preservation of the universe, no less than its creation, implies a necessity and necessities at every moment of time uh, an omnipotent and omnipresent person, personal being. And so God is with us. He's down here and he's seeing to every minute of everything that goes on. He allows certain things that are bad. He didn't create them. He allowed them because he's desperately trying to reach us. And a lot of times, let me explain it this way. If you're raising a boy and he's bullheaded. He won't listen to you. And that's the way man has always been to God, even the Israelites. You tell him, and you tell him, and you tell him, and he ain't listening. And finally, the father, because he loves the boy, he says, all right, you insist on doing that, you'll find out. And he lets the boy experience it. And when the boy comes back with bloodied and with tears 
like the prodigal son, then he's learned his lesson, hadn't he? Did the, did the, did the father let the prodigal son go? He certainly did. Does God let us go with our imaginations and our fantasies? Yeah, he does. But there's a payday for every one of them. And God knows that that'll be the only thing that'll turn you around. What did he say about the whole nation of Judah? In Hosea, in, uh, Hosea uh, 2 verse 14 and 15, I think it is, God spoke of Israel as a wife. He had tried every way in the world to break her of idolatry. And her stubborn will was there. She wasn't about to turn. And so God said, I'll allure her into the valley of trouble. I'm going to lead her into trouble. If you find yourself in trouble, it's because God has led you there and you needed it. I've led my boys several times into the valley of trouble. It was actually the bedroom with my belt. But it was the valley of trouble to them. And so God said, I will allure her, speaking of Israel, into the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble. And there she'll give answer to me. And it'll be her only door of hope. You see, God had tried everything under the sun to try to get their attention. They wouldn't listen. He said, the only thing I can do is let you go into captivity. See that you go into captivity. And then maybe you'll listen to me. And boy, they went in with alligator tears. When God done this to us? Why did Dad do it so, so hard on us? And God said she's not coming out of that valley. And she didn't for 70 years until she learns that I'm no longer Bala, but Isha, which in the Hebrew is master and husband. They saw God as a hard master. Boy, he's a demanding God. He expects me to offer a spotless lamb? Why, well, I can sell that and make extra money there. And we're the same way today. The collection plate goes around, and I'm not saying there's a need for that money, but how do we look at it? Oh, I need to hang on to this. And so we'll give God the pennies and the dollar bills. Somebody made a joke about that. They asked money what they'd been up to. They asked a $100 bill. Oh, I've been traveling in the far countries and flying here and flying there. And asked a $50 bill, and he'd been doing this about the same thing. They asked a $1 bill, what have you been up to? Oh, you know how it is. Church, church, church. <laughs> collection plate, collection plate, collection plate. Now, if you don't see any humor in that, then don't laugh. If you do, at least you can do is giggle. But I think it's funny. Because it speaks of our immaturity and our problems that we have. But Israel went into that captivity in big alligator tears. You can read about it in Psalms 172. The psalmist said we wept when we went into Babylon's captivity. And the enemy taunted us. They said, you Jews, how about singing us one of the, your songs of Zion? and your great Jehovah. And they mocked them. And the psalmist said all we could do is hang our harps on the willow trees and weep. You know what a harp is for. It's not, it's not for weeping. 
It's for joyous occasions. There was no joy there is the idea of hanging your harps in the willow trees. Psalms 137. Hmm? Psalms 137. Psalms 137. Are you sure about that? I am. There's no 172. I'm sure you know that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was therapeutic, in case you didn't notice. I got one here, but I'm listening. <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, the, uh, the, uh, the theistic or biblical concept of providence teaches that God is not only the creator, but the preserver of the universe. Now, let me stop right here and talk about this a little bit. He's the preserver of the universe. He's in tune with everything that's going on. Then why is there all this worry about, oh, the, the ice age and, the, oh, you know, it's getting hotter and, oh, we're going to burn up or we're going to freeze to death and we got we got to leave the gasoline engine and go to electricity. Those are the stupidest things that ever could be, and they're not biblical. Because God's a creator and a preserver of the universe, and that the preservation of the universe, no less than its creation, implies and necessitates at every moment of time an omnipotent, omnipresent, personal being. This world is not governed by the laws of nature, uh, as deism teaches, but it is governed by God according to the laws of nature. I want to read that one more time in case you missed it. This world is not governed by the laws of nature, as deism teaches, but it is governed by God according to the laws of nature. Law in itself is an impotent thing, except as it is the expression of a free will or person backing back of it. The laws are natural. The laws of nature are meaningless and impotent, except as they are an expression of the uniform mode according to which God preserves and governs the world. In other words, law don't mean a thing unless you've got men, personalities behind it to back it up and we have a God that rules this universe according to law. Now let's bring it down to our government here in America. Can't you see this? We've come to a point to where our prosecutors don't prosecute the law. Our police, they've been taken out of the picture in many ways and many extremes. We're living in an age where we're seeing people in large multitudes run into stores and openly rob and pillage. We're seeing people on the street kicking and beating one another uh, for no per reason, just to do it. We have an animalistic world we're living in. The only thing that governs it is law. But the law don't arrest anybody. It's a man that arrests, it's a personality that arrests somebody according to law. And what this idea is, that God is the one who establishes these laws and makes them punitive. 
make some punishment. All right, it is uh, customary to speak of the laws of nature as if they were certain self-existent forces or powers governing the world. But shall we not rather say that those that there is no real cause except personal will, either the divine will or the created wills? If this be true, then it is inconsistent to say that God has committed the government of the physical universe to secondary causes. He's in charge, in other words. That is, to the laws of nature, and that those laws are not immediately dependent upon him for their efficiency. And so the omnipotent and ever-acting uh, active God is the only real force and power and cause in the universe. Except as created wills may be true and real causes within uh, their limited bounds. And so we enforce law. God enforces law. This universe is not ruled by happenstance. <laughs> now, let me talk about the problem a minute, and then our objective, and then the principle by which we're going to study God's rule among the nations. The problem. Those whose faith is biblically founded affirm that God both made the world and will ultimately judge it. But as to God's interference into human affairs in a non-miraculous age is a subject unsettled for many in the church. But the Bible is explicit on God's overruling providence in human affairs. And that's what we're going to see. If you've got the patience to stick with me in this study. Now, the, our, uh, what's, what's our object? Our object. Our objective. Uh, objective. The object of this study is to discern the principles of the divine operation among the nations of the earth and how this affects the church in its role of redeeming ruined humanity. You think God's with us in uh, reaching out to the lost? He's already told you you're not going to save everybody because everybody don't want to be. Very few want to be saved. The ones that want to be saved are hungering and thirsting. Are you going to be ready, as Peter says, to give answer to every man that asks you of the hope that lies within you? Peter didn't say go out there and grab them by the throat and make them uh, drink of it. He said wait till they ask and then give it to them. Tell them what the, your hope is. Boy, we've lost that concept. Most churches think you got to go around knocking doors and aggravating people. No, 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 no. We learned that from the denominational world. And if there's anybody behind them doors that is hungering and thirsting for righteousness, aren't they going to hear about the little church in Benton City? They live here. Aren't they going to learn about the church in Alaska? They live up there. Aren't they going to begin to look and search? And they'll find it. 
because the Lord gave that guarantee in Rome in John 8 he said search seek and you shall find knock and it shall be opened to you God guarantees that did did Cornelius seek and find did God see to the finding he went and got Philip in the, in the uh, eighth chapter of Acts and he told him go join yourself to that chariot there's a fellow looking for the truth and he baptized him Alright, the principle or the premise on which our study will be founded. It's on the immutability of God. Immutability means never changing or varying. He's unchangeable. You know, there's actually some people that thinks that God's going to rewrite the book force and and allow other people to go to heaven other than the plan here. They don't see the authority of this word. They don't recognize that this is God's final message of hope to a lost world. They don't see that. Alright, so uh, our premise, the principle or premise on which our study will be founded is the immutability of God. God's nature and character are changeless. Let me give you some scripture here. Hebrews 6 and verse 17. It says, Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, that's you and me, the immutability of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath. In Malachi 3 verse 6, God says, I, Jehovah, change not. Uh, this statement of God's changeless nature and the biblical confirmation of it portrayed by the inspired writers makes the following proposition a reliable principle. And here it is. Here's the reliable principle. Whatever forces provoke God in ages past to take benevolent or punitive action toward man will when reproduced today, provoke the same type of divine response. In other words, God will react today to the same things that he reacted in centuries gone by since man has been on the earth. He don't have different programs. He has one. We learned that about salvation, didn't we? We, we studied Romans and we found out in the third chapter uh, that uh, there's not one man that was ever saved by law. Why did God give the law? Well, he told you. He told you why he gave it. That every mouth may be stopped, verse 19. That the whole world may become guilty, verse 19. And then in verse 20, he said, therefore, that's a, based on wherefore the went before, that's a conclusion. And he said, therefore, uh, no flesh should be justified in his sight by law. For by the law is merely the knowledge of sin. So why did God get sin the law? That we might wake up and see what sin really is. That's why. It's 
not hard to understand. And so we learned uh, that we're saved by grace. And here uh, we've got to be able to see the divine response in terms of God's jealousy for his children. That's you and me. For his church that his son purchased with his own blood. Acts 20 verse 28. And on the basis a person may read the signs of the times. Now we are created in the image of God. We've studied that. We've seen that we are a shadow of God. We are the image, an imprint of God. Now we have the same abilities as God, just not to the degree that he's got it. He created you very uniquely. You have the ability to forecast the future, but it's limited. You have, uh, you have powers and, and things uh, as God has, only you're limited. He's not. You were made as a shadow of God. And we ought to be able to read the signs of the times. He who is willing to learn the principles of the divine operation as revealed uh, in the Bible will be better enabled to detect straws in the wind falling in such a direction that he can tell which way the whirlwind is blowing. You don't believe that? Turn over to Matthew 16, 1 through 3, and this will finish out our study. Matthew 16. 1 through 3. <coughs> the Pharisees also, with the Sadducees, came and tipping, uh, desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said unto them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, because the sky is red and lowering. Oh, you hypocrites, you can discern uh, the face of the sky, but can you discern the signs of the times? You see, God revealed himself here in the Old Testament, and they should have been able to read the signs of the times. Didn't the, uh, the Persian wise men, didn't they read the signs of the times? They weren't even Jews. They read these scriptures, and they saw that there was a king to be born uh, amongst the Jews. And they came over to Herod, and naturally, as an embassy from another kingdom they had to come to the king as wicked as he was and they said we come to pay tribute to the, this king being born Herod didn't know anything about it he was a Jew he called the high priests and questioned them they didn't know either because they weren't in tune with the word of God as Jesus said they were teaching for doctrine the commandments of men they didn't understand the scriptures no more than the denominational world does today. They just ride roughshod over them. If something sounds good, they'll use it and use it out of context. That's the way it works. 
And so Jesus expected these Jews to be able to read the signs of the times. And when we study about God that changes not, he does not change, we're able to read the signs of the times because when we, he's given us ample evidence of what destroys a government when they begin to trust in all the things like in the book of Obadiah. They trusted in material things, their army, uh, their military force, their, their weaponry, their wise men, their money that they could buy allies with, and their fortification. They trusted in everything that America trusts in, and they was judged because of it. They lived in clay, uh, caves, uh, holes in the rock space, and the enemy couldn't do nothing but just come in there and steal what they could on the ground floor. And in verse 4 of chapter 1, I love that verse. God said, though you dwell where the eagles dwell, yet I'll bring you down. And he did. He destroyed that nation. Because they trusted in everything but God. So when we study the Old Testament, we are developing a, a mind's eye that will enable us to read the signs of the times. You've been reading the signs of the times? America is looking pretty bleak. Our historians tell us that a democracy's never stood over 200, 200 years. Ours has stood 230. So if they're true, if that's correct according to history, what's the signs of the times? And in our blatant rebellion against God, we don't want the name God mentioned. We don't want the book uh, presented in any place, the schools or nothing, we have showed our defiance against God as a nation. What does it look like in the signs of the times? Well, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that judgment is coming. Well, next week, uh, we'll look at the methodology of our study. Uh, I'll save that for next week. Uh, see, this is the 19th. Yeah. Yeah. It was this morning. It still is this afternoon. All day. <laughs> Thank you for listening to me. Let's stand while we sing our closing hymn. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Lay down, thou weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn.
blessing it is to gather in your name to hear another portion of your word to declare to this world that we worship and serve a risen Savior, that our faith is shown, that the assurance has been given, the hope that we have. May we always be ready to give answers to those who ask. May we always be ready to have study. May we always give ourselves to the thought of the next uh, worship, that we may be prepared, that those that visit may truly see that the men of this congregation look to you for guidance, look to you for those the things that we should teach, and may we always be ready to be humble enough to listen to one another. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Alright, how goes it? Yeah, how about yourself?